Hello, and welcome to the Human Instrumentality Podcast, your guided deep dive into the seminal animated series, Neon Genesis Evangelion. I'm Ian Corey. And I'm Joseph Schaefer. In this, the fourth episode, we're going to cover episodes five and six of the original television series, Neon Genesis Evangelion. We're assuming that you are watching the series alongside us. So, if you haven't seen the first episodes of the show, and also, if you haven't listened to the first three episodes of the podcast, I recommend you do both before listening any further. I'm not going to say it again after this. But for now, Human Instrumentality Podcast, Unit 3, launch! Alright, so Episode 5 of Neon Genesis Evangelion is entitled, Ray at the Heart. It begins in a flashback to the reactivation test of Unit Zero, which was hinted at in the second episode of the show. Uh, In it, these events take place before episode one. Ray is inside Unit Zero and attempting to synchronize with it. Needless to say, the sync test does not go well. Unit Zero goes into a berserker mode and needs to be shut down. Uh, Ray's entry plug is ejected, and Unit Zero is covered in this sort of uh, cement cooling goop. They never exactly explain what the stuff is. But her entry plug is super hot from the friction of karaming around uh, the test room, and Gendo runs down and saves Ray from the entry plug. In the course of doing this, he burns his hands, which explains why he's always wearing gloves, and breaks a pair of his glasses. That little point becomes sort of important. Directly after that, we flash back into the normal timeline of the series in the same room, and Nerve is excavating Unit Zero. They're cutting it out of this now hardened red goop. Uh, Gendo and Ritsuko are watching this process, and Ritsuko says that she notes that Ray, the pilot of Unit Zero, might be mentally unstable. We then cut to the battlefield in which Shinji uh, fought Shamshiel, the last angel that we saw two episodes ago, uh, along with Misato and Ritsuko. So while they are breaking down the remains of the angel, Ritsuko uh, lets the other two characters know that, in fact, the angels in a very abstract sense, are roughly the same DNA type as human beings. Uh, While this revelation is being revealed to Shinji and Masato, Shinji notices that Gendo's hands are burnt. We see the scars that were inflicted upon him when he was attempting to save Rei. Uh, He asks the two other adults in the room about it and suddenly is shocked to find out that his father does care about another person that happens to not be him. Back at the high school, During recess, while the girls are swimming and the boys are playing basketball, the boys that we were introduced to in the last two episodes, Toji, Kensuke, and Shinji, are uh, basically being peeping toms to most of the girls in swimsuits, while uh, Shinji is focusing on Rei and is curious about her since he still knows pretty much nothing about, uh, about her. We then flash back to Nerve HQ where Shinji is inside the entry plug and therefore cannot hear the sounds outside of the Ava, but he sees across the way that Rei is talking excitedly to Gendo. Both of them have smiles on their faces, even though Shinji can't make out the words that they're saying. And we get a cut back to Shinji with an honestly horrified facial expression, trying to understand how these two people that seem to have no 
uh, emotional warmth with anyone else have some sort of degree of familiarity and joviality with each other. Uh, we then cut to a party that night at Misato's house where Ritzko has come to join the two of them for dinner. Of course, the dinner is awful. Uh, while eating the food, uh, Ritzko decides to give Shinji uh, Ray's new security pass. Uh, this is a sort of an engineered social situation where uh, Shinji will have to go to Ray's apartment and socialize with her at the behest of the uh, higher ops at Nerf. Shinji later goes to Ray's apartment in order to give her that security card uh, and makes a couple startling discoveries. Ray lives by herself in a nearly dilapidated apartment uh, with almost no furniture and prescriptions to tons and tons of medication. Uh, he enters her apartment without asking permission. It's just open uh, and doesn't see her inside. Uh, but he does find the pair of his father's glasses from the first scene that are broken. And awkwardly, while he's trying them on, he turns around and sees Ray, who's just taken a shower. Uh, it's not entirely clear how he doesn't hear the shower going or why the shower doesn't make any sound, but that's not important because Ray's first reaction isn't to put any clothes on, isn't to say anything, it's to try and snatch Gendo's glasses back from him. Uh, and in so doing, the two uh, find themselves sort of physically entangled and fall down onto the floor. So Shinji's very, very close to Rei while she's nude, but she's completely nonplussed. Shinji attempts to try to explain himself, and Rei doesn't seem to care at all. He keeps following her back to Nerve, trying to explain himself, and Rei just gives no fucks. It's not until her security card doesn't let her in the door that Shinji uses her new security card to open it, hands it to her, and finally gets a little bit of her attention. While the two of them are heading to the new reactivation test for Unit Zero, uh, Shinji attempts his version of small talk by asking Rei if she's scared. Rei is not scared and, in fact, questions Shinji's faith in Gendo's project. Since Shinji has a terrible relationship with his father, he says that he has no faith. And for the first time, uh, we see a spark of emotion uh, brought out by something that Shinji has done. Rei turns, walks back up the escalator a few steps, and slaps Shinji in the face. We then cut to the reactivation test. This time it goes smoothly. Nothing goes wrong. But just in time, an angel shows up to, uh, to complicate things. Shinji gets sent out to fight this new angel, which appears to be a giant singing hedron of some kind that just sort of is floating ominously above the city. The minute Shinji arrives, the floating mirror cube shoots a laser beam and immediately wipes Shinji off the map. They have to immediately pull him back down below the surface to save his life. Cut to episode five, showdown in Tokyo 3. This episode is very quick, and it's basically a race against time from start to finish to defeat the angel. It begins seconds after the last episode ends. Uh, unit one has been safely withdrawn and it can be repaired. But Shinji's somewhat injured from taking a direct hit from uh, the fifth angel's uh, particle beam weapon. Meanwhile, the fifth angel, its name is Ramiel, by the way, floats directly on top of the geofront and launches a drill 
to attempt to bore down through the earth and directly penetrate Nerve headquarters. Nerve attempts to test its defenses uh, with a decoy of Unit 1, as well as a mortar weapon. More or less, Ramiel's defenses are perfect. Its AT field is incredibly strong, so strong you can see it with the naked eye, and its defensive particle weapon reacts almost reflexively against anything that gets near enough to harm it. Uh, So they have 10 hours until the drill will penetrate the geofront, and the episode becomes this incredibly thrilling race against the clock. And the next sequence of the episode is basically characterized by Misato being an absolute boss. She hatches a bizarre plan to snipe Ramiel from outside of its defense perimeter with a particle gun. Nerve doesn't have a particle gun that works like a giant robot sniper rifle, so she uses some sort of legal means to requisition one from a weapons development lab. Ray shows up in Unit Zero and carries it away, and they figure out that because Ray's reaction time with Unit Zero is slowed, she's not going to be able to fire the weapon, so Shinji has to. Instead, they're going to let Ray function as a human shield for him. Her shield, by the way, is the bottom of a fucking space shuttle. And to fire the gun, they're going to need all of the electricity in Japan. Miraculously, Misato manages to formulate all the domino pieces of this plan inside the 10-hour time window. She calls her sniper rifle beam weapon operation Operation Yashima. So then Ray visits Shinji and informs him that he will shortly have to once again pilot the Ava in order to complete the mission. Shinji is, of course, a whiny little baby about this and suggests that Ray has no idea how much pain he has gone through and that she couldn't possibly ask him to do this. Ray responds by saying that uh, if Shinji won't do it, then she will, which again causes Shinji to uh, knuckle up and accept the mission with both Ava pilots ready to go. The other boys and the other, some of the other assorted school children are watching in the sort of cliche anime way from the rooftop as the sun is setting and get to see this sort of glorious shot of the two uh, Ava's marching off to battle the angel. Uh, Masato breaks down the plan, explains that basically there's no guarantee that it will work. Ritsuko also cautions Shinji to not, think about the possibilities of it not working and instead focus on the task at hand. Shinji gets ready to be the sniper. Ray prepares the shield. The first shot appears to be going well at first, but Ramiel fires off a counter shot too soon. So the two particle beams bypass each other, both miss, which gives us a very short window of time to reload before Ramiel strikes again. Shinji is not prepared by the time that Ramiel fires another particle laser. Ray jumps in front of Shinji, takes the blast, only has about 10 seconds to hold until her shield has melted away completely. This gives Shinji just enough time to fire off a second shot, blasting away Ramiel. Uh, in the process, Ray and Unit Zero are badly damaged. In a perfect mirror to the first scene of this very wonderfully sculpted two-part episode, Shinji ejects from Unit 1, goes over to Ray's superheated entry plug, and forces it open just the way his father did in the first scene, burning his hands in the same way. 
inside, he helps uh, jostle Ray back into consciousness and tells her that she shouldn't ever say that she has nothing else to lose. Because earlier in the episode, when he asked why she would uh, take on the sniper position when her reflexes aren't good enough to do it properly, she says that she has nothing else in her life besides being an Ava pilot. When Shinji implores her to never uh, be this sort of emo emotional self that she's shown uh, briefly, she says that she doesn't know what to do in this awkward, uh, weird pep talk situation. Shinji says that she should smile. And Ray does. End of episode and cue Shinji being totally canceled on Twitter. There's a lot to dig in here. We've got a few very large themes that we want to get to in this episode. So I, I do want to kind of quickly move through a bunch of smaller things that we both really, really enjoy in an uncomplicated way about this episode. Uh, totally. Because there are things that, as you can tell, are very complicated and will take some time to tease out. When in the previous episode, we both mentioned that this is a particular favorite chunk of the show. I think we should now clarify that that is because of the way the episode is plotted and the way that the action spools out there. It is also a fascinating episode on a character level, but there's so much going on that is, has been complicated by the reception of the show that I want to save that until later. What I think is truly noteworthy about this episode in a completely uncomplicated way is how beautifully in particular episode six sets off sets up and pays off the action of taking down the angel. I think this is a incredible action episode. I think it might be the best in the entire show. I think, I think that's right. There's other iconic fight scenes to come in this series. So if you haven't seen the rest of Evangelion, don't take this episode as a, it's all downhill from here. It's not. Uh, but if you if you look at the show in terms of it being like a pure action adventure science fiction story that's meant to be edifying and fun and tense and creative, this is probably about as good as that gets. And after this, the series is going to sort of try in vain to resuscitate itself as a monster of the week show and then abandon that. I think probably because... As far as Monster of the Week premises go, four and five in the sniper duel with Ramiel are about as good as it gets. And that really starts with the monster itself. I think this is an all-time achievement in villain design for a TV show. Ramiel is, I hesitate to say my favorite angel just because they're, I like a lot of them for a lot of different reasons. But this is the first time that you really get a sense of how far Ava is willing to go to create new and exciting uh, enemies for the characters to fight it's such a bizarre surreal design again it's a giant it sort of looks like two pyramids smacked onto the ends of each other all reflective it every time it shows up on screen there's this sort of subtle hum of like an operatic voice and it's never explained you, you never get to understand why this thing is an angel how why it's so different than the other two it's especially funny learning in the same episode that angels are more human in terms of their composition than we had previously realized. And then the first angel we see after learning that is the most inhuman possible thing that you can imagine. It appears to be geometric and architectural before it is alive. And that goes right down even to the weird veiny drill that comes out of the bottom of it. It looks like a machine, not a living creature. 
That's that's totally right. I, I, you know, the previous two angels that, that we've seen in the show, because, of course, they're numbered, which means that there's two that we haven't seen previously. But uh, Ramiel, the fifth angel, is the first one that doesn't seem to be uh, based off some sort of life form or uh, <laughs> piece of human anatomy. Um, I kind of think this decision is a, is a little bit political, uh, or, or at least in a way is another part of Evangelion deconstructing the tropes that it's playing with. And I think that's because, you know, eventually we'll get to an episode, Ian, where I don't bring a Godzilla movie up. I'll believe it when I hear it. Uh, this is not that episode. Um, <laughs> so, so when Evangelion came out, I, I really think that Ramiel is sort of Hidekiano and Yoshiki Satomoto, the character designer who designed all the angels. I really think it's them sort of biting their thumb at the Godzilla series because brief context at this point in time, the most recent Godzilla movie was Godzilla versus space Godzilla. I doubt you've seen it. Have you Ian? I have not. No. Okay. Well, sometime Google what space Godzilla looks like. So at this point in time in the Godzilla series, they were sort of running out of ideas for bad guys and just sort of settled on different versions of evil Godzillas because that seemed to sell well. And space Godzilla is the absolute nadir of the creativity of the series. In, in my opinion, he's just Godzilla, but blue with crystals on his shoulders. Yeah. I've pulled this up on my end on my phone and I am underwhelmed. I've got to say, this is not a very good character design. It just looks like Godzilla with bigger spikes to me. Space Godzilla fucking sucks. Uh, <laughs> and this, I think Ramiel is Yoshiki Satomoto, like watching that movie and being like, dude, fucking crystals, fucking crystals should have been the whole damn thing. And then he sits down to draw. <laughs> he sits down to draw and he's like, wait, what if a crystal was the whole fucking thing? Has to be the fastest angel to design. He just draws eight lines and is like, yep. There it is. There's one other angel that I think might have happened a bit quicker, but we'll get to that one when we get to it. Immediately what makes this so compelling is the unique enemy, but also the rules that the enemy places on the show. You know, having this incredibly power, powerful sniper weapon that immediately sort of breaks the convention of what we expect from an Ava, from an Ava versus Angel fight, where it can't be close combat. There's really no way to conventionally battle it. You have to get creative. And the second episode of this pair is so thrilling because we get to see Masato prove why she's why she has this job. She's in, incredibly driven, incredibly creative, incredibly competent, thinks outside of the box and comes up with this completely absurd, elaborate scheme. And it works. And it the fact like watching her figure out how to pull it off even though we've only just been introduced to this problem is just so thrilling. It's so enjoyable. This episode is a, is like a love letter to her and is a love letter to like the idea of competence in general. This episode feels like spotlight in 10 minutes and Misato's all the characters at once figuring the problem out. That's an analogy I did not expect to happen <laughs> in this podcast, but I totally know what you mean. It's, it's a very like, professional competency it's not just like hero hits harder and therefore wins it's like the smartest person in the room gets creative and goes through this procedure to craft a very creative solution to a very strange problem absolutely couldn't couldn't have put it better myself and and i think that's 
as it's almost more exciting to like watch Misato techno babble her way through how the problem's going to be solved than it is to actually watch the sniper duel. Um, even though jumping back just one second, the shot the first time you see Ramiel use the particle beam, the shot where it launches the beam through the skyscraper to hit unit one so good it's a perfect shot it's just beautiful and it lasts maybe half a second yeah there's a ton of stuff like that for me the timing is so exquisite in the way that when shinji is firing you know his sniper blast at it the timing to have ramiel fire back at the exact moment where you wouldn't expect it to that i would say that while the preparation obviously is what builds the tension for the majority of the episode, the action sequence itself is so clean and how it just has all of these perfect little twists and turns to make the episode land on a note that doesn't feel perfunctory or corny or too easy. Like it, it does such a good job of sticking the landing. I, I think it's a really terrific action sequence at the end too. So I don't want to let that go unremarked upon. Do we want to jump into maybe some of the more complicated parts of these two episodes or uh, do you have anything else that is unambiguously positive that you'd like to get out of the way first i don't think there's any way to escape the big blue-haired elephant in the room at this point and it's just gonna keep coming up so let's just get it out of the way right so as you can tell by the fact that her name is in several of the episode titles for these two episodes we have to talk about ray this is our first real introduction to Ray as more than just a background character. The first of these two episodes is explicitly concerned with the mystery of Ray, how little Shinji knows about Ray, um, how little anyone seems to know about her. And the things that we learn are troubling, to say the least. We, up to this point, have only seen her covered in bandages and mostly used as a tool to get Shinji to pilot the Ava. And the first few scenes that we have with her in these episodes really don't do much to complicate that. She's mostly the object of horny teenage affection. Her own body is used to sort of alienate Shinji and to provide this like incredibly awkward and, in my opinion, in 2019, kind of overly literal and too contrived meat cute that doesn't really leave a great uh, taste in my mouth these days. But the crucial thing that we learn... I think in these episodes is that Ray does not care about herself at all. Ray cares about piloting the Ava and completing Gendo's mission at the expense of literally everything else about herself. She doesn't care if she gets hurt. She doesn't care if she dies. And that same attitude translates to the way that she lives. She lives in an absolute shithole. It's a completely derelict apartment that looks like it's in the projects in these, you know, sort of endless rows and rows of identical houses, um, which I think is, it's a very deliberate stylistic choice to kind of put her there. It's this kind of disposability and repetition and sparseness. It's like austerity, you know? Absolutely. When we first meet her in that apartment, she doesn't even care about her own body. Um, She doesn't care that Shinji is directly on top of her and, you know, feeling her up in her own apartment. And this is a scene that it sucks to watch now because I think the majority of the way that people watch this show and the way that Ray has been sort of used as like an anime icon actually undercuts what's attempting to be told here on a story level. 
which is that idea that like Ray doesn't have a sense of self and Ray doesn't care about herself. Instead, it just makes her look like a total pushover and a sort of weird sex doll, um, which is how I think a lot of uh, Ava fans have come to interpret that character in the ensuing years since this episode came out. You're you're totally right. I, th- I think at this point, you know, before I, I give my like Ray take, I think we need to break the fourth wall for a second and just say to the listeners, <clears throat> some of whom are probably like longtime Ava fans and some of whom are probably new. Let me just say this. This is going to be, unfortunately, a podcast with two straight passing uh, cis white dudes talking about feminism as it relates to cartoons. Uh, <laughs> and that's not for everybody. And that's OK. And we're not going to nail it, but we're going to do it the best that we can, or at least I'm going to do it the best that we can. So bear with me. But if that's not something you're interested in, then maybe this podcast isn't for you, my friend. Now that I've done my spiel, the show obviously is of two minds about Ray, And like, and, and as it goes on, you sort of see it attempt to resolve that because Ray's arc as a character is not interesting, but Ray's arc as, in terms of like what Ray does in the story is fascinating to me. And in a way, this is the least interesting thing Ray does. The meet cute totally devalues her as a character. Uh, and, and as if it isn't like cringy enough, at the end, there's the part where like her her dresser drawer flies open and they're randomly covered in white bras and panties. It it sucks. Like I, it, on rewatching it, I was almost like, I know this scene's going to be cringe, but I'm going to get through without cringing. And then I, I forgot about the dresser drawer full of underwear. And then the dresser drawer full of underwear happens. And I'm like, yikes, I can't believe 15-year-old me did not see a problem with this. Yeah, I mean, I think it's deliberately meant to only make sense to 15-year-old boys. Like, it's supposed to be like a horrifying, awkward, cringy moment. But by playing it to such an absurd, almost like comic tone, that any kind of real emotional resonance that could be gotten out of the scene is completely undervalued. It feels like a like a old like frat boy comedy from the early 2000s or something, you know, it, mm-hmm. it's just, it's a tone that I don't think the show is able to nail in a good way. Unlike the, the way that like Misato and Shinji are kind of flirty in a way that is sometimes funny. And I think kind of like speaks to like Misato's immaturity in a telling way. This only serves to be kind of gross and objectifying and shitty. I I really wish the show had taken a different tact in that particular scene, because I do think the underlying idea of Ray's like lack of self-preservation is like an interesting idea to play around in, in a show like this, but putting it in that context is really fucked up and out if trying to like extrapolate that kind of presentation beyond the show and just towards like gender at large gets you some really really gross and grody results that i i don't vibe with well i I agree completely here's because evangelion deals with anime tropes and tries to deconstruct them It, it doesn't do that perfectly it does that really well with giant robot stuff um but at this point in time and the show does wind up abandoning this Fortunately, but at this point in time, the show is still sort of dealing with the uh, the like harem trope genre, mm-hmm. which is a cringy genre. And for for like listeners who don't know, um, Tenshi Muyo is probably the most, at least the only example of this that was on Toonami. But this is like an anime trope that involves like one guy who's surrounded by sort of different female characters and has sort of a will they won't they relationship romantically with all of them. And at the beginning, 
Ava kind of tries to do that. And it, it kind of tries to set, set that up with Ray here and with Misato earlier. And it'll do it again with a character that's going to be introduced. Tellingly, it works best the last time because mm-hmm. it, it does not it does not work here. But I will say I, I did upon rewatching it notice maybe a different read or at least maybe somewhere inside the show somewhere in Hideki Anno's mind he maybe did try to critique the the sexist harem trope in in some ways. And I, I think the way that it does that is this episode is way more interesting if you watch it a second time and think that maybe Ray is a sociopath. I think that's absolutely crucial. I think that's the point of the sh- of the episode. The problem is that the sloppy execution hid that theme, but that idea is at the core of this episode. I'm really glad you're teasing it out right now. Right. Much like I thought earlier with the Kensuke thing, where I was like, you could direct the conversation between Shinji and Kensuke with Kensuke as a military reenactor, and it could be really dark, and the show doesn't do that. Um, when you look back at the the meet cute with Ray, and you think about the fact that hmm, maybe Ray doesn't feel emotions like humans do, like normal people do, then that becomes in a weird way like a kind of menacing scene because like Shinji's feeling like normal things he's in an abnormal situation but like he's like aroused and awkward and embarrassed and confused and you get all of that like from the character and the dialogue but Ray's just giving him this piercing glance re-watching it I was like you could actually make this scene even much darker and look back and think what if Ray was thinking about just killing him I think more than anything it's that Ray doesn't care at all about Shinji. Shinji doesn't mean anything to Rei. Rei only has a single concern at this point. That is being an Ava pilot and being a good one, or to the best of her ability in order to achieve the mission. She isn't shocked by Shinji's presence. Uh, She's shocked by Shinji taking something of Gendo's and wearing it, which to her seems like a an affront not she's not concerned about the invasion of her personal space but the idea of taking something from who she perceives to be the most important person in her life even more in person than her more important than herself uh, that is a step too far so anytime that shinji does something that could potentially damage gendo or reflect badly on gendo that's when ray becomes even remotely human so the sociopathy is it's directly that she just only cares about that one thing at the cost of everything else. So she doesn't give a fuck about Shinji in any way until the end of the second of these two episodes. And that's kind of the, the lesson that these episodes I think are trying to use Ray to tell, which is that not caring about yourself is damaging to the people that care about you. I think is the sort of underlying thesis of these two episodes that that's why Shinji breaks down at the very end after the Ramiel fight is that he can't bear the idea of Ray not caring if she lives or dies because he on some level does care about her. Ray's sociopathy is sort of her blank slate setting and the show is going to continue to try and rehabilitate her, like bring her into actual human life one step at a time. And so I think that that's kind of what is attempting to be done in these two episodes, but you need to start from a place of Ray being a completely blank slate to get there. So in a, a previous conversation that we've had about 
the, these episodes, you'd mentioned something that really interested me about the metaphor of Gendo's glasses in these episodes. Sure. And I was wondering if you could expound on that a bit, because I think it's really useful to talk the themes that we're talking about here. Right. I, I think I'm applying the importance of the glasses using sort of two things. One of them is spoilers, stuff I know about how the series ends or how some of the movies end. So I know that some symbology is going to become more important to this to the plot and like how you interpret the story. Right. But so, mm-hmm. so that's part of why I, I see the glasses is really important. The other part is as I'm rewatching these episodes, the glasses are in them way more than I remember. Specifically what I'm thinking about is the way that Ray has the glasses sort of hanging on the edge of her pilot seat when she's doing the sink test. Like they're a totem or a fetish something that that's supposed to bring her security or bring her power and and a lot of what these characters want is power and or security uh, that's mm-hmm. what people are looking for in the show and so it's interesting that ray gets those from gendo's glasses then i started thinking about how we always see Gendo behind glass. The first time you see him, like we spoke about in a previous episode, you think that he's in the open air and then the lighting fixture swings forward to hit him and then it breaks because he's been behind glass the whole time. And then in the beginning of these episodes, Unit Zero tries to kill him and he's protected behind glass the whole time. The glass is is Gendo's AT field. He's got an ever-present AT field the way that the angels do. It's just, it's... It's physical. Even when he's not behind a wall of glass, he's wearing his glasses. They're even tinted. He's got douchebag shades that tint in the sunlight. I didn't notice that on first first watch either. So all of that really, really spoke to me about the importance of the glasses are him. They are him as a character. They sum him up as a physical manifestation and people project their ideas of him onto his fucking glasses. Yeah, totally. I I really love this point in particular because it lends a really, really interesting flavor to the like. So when Gendo runs down to free Ray from the entry plug, the glasses fall off of his face and into the LCL and then crack. And so if we're taking that metaphor to its its logical conclusion, this is a moment where Gendo is throwing down his guard in some way. The the AT field that is protecting him from you know being able to connect with other people in this moment is no longer on his face, and it's because he is like desperately reaching out to save Ray. Now, why exactly he cares enough about Ray to put down his guard in such a vulnerable manner? I think it's worth questioning exactly what his intentions are. As we've already discussed on this show, there is a callousness to the way that Gendo uses Rey towards his own ends. I don't think the show wants us to think of this in a purely sentimental way. I think it is a complicated emotional turn. But even that, like the, the, the fact that the glasses persist over these two episodes is also interesting in the way that they play with Shinji. The fact that, you know, Rey only becomes angry at Shinji when Shinji reaches for the glasses or also, like as we talked about, impunges on Gendo's name. Shinji, I think, has as much emotional attachment or interest in those glasses because it's it's something of his father that he can touch 
without hurting himself in some way. It's it, him being able to see the glasses by themselves separate from Gendo sort of suggests a an emotional inner life to Gendo that he couldn't access otherwise, you know? I think that he thinks that, but it's also false because, so for one thing, Gendo just replaces his fucking glasses. He doesn't even get the lenses changed and gets, and uses the same frames. He just replaces the glasses with the exact same pair of glasses. Spoiler, hint, hint, this says something about Ray. But, you know, he, 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 this seems like this, to other people, it's this important personification of him. And yeah, he's he does become vulnerable in his attempts to save Ray, but he doesn't acknowledge it later. Like, even that moment, the moment of vulnerability to him is disposable in in favor of whatever his ultimate aim is likewise you know shinji thinks the glasses are the one piece of his father that he can hold close to him that won't cause him damage but if if the glasses are what separates people from other people then the glasses are literally the thing that hurts him Mm -hmm. he doesn't even understand the nature of his father enough to ascribe proper meaning to the glasses and neither does Ray. He, he gives these things to Ray and she's like, this is important. This is what signifies my, I have a father. I have a protector. I have someone who cares about me and here's the proof. But for me as an outsider looking as a voyeur, Hitchcock would say we're all voyeurs, right? From the Hitchcockian perspective, it's like the thing that gives you gratification is the thing that's, preventing you from from being gratified it's it's weirdly kinky but speaking to your point about things that are disposable i do want to (laughs) i do want to get on to our the next subject the next big subject that these particular episodes call which is that these episodes sort of lay the groundwork for what could have been the hollywood version of neon genesis evangelion and I know that you've done much more extensive research about this. So I, I want you to, to take it away and uh, regale us with the tale of how we almost got the Hollywood Ava adaptation. Some, some listeners may remember that Evangelion wasn't super widely distributed in the United States. This Netflix distribution is probably like the easiest it's been to see it legally. But let's not mince words here. Uh, even though it wasn't when it was originally released, Evangelion's like Star Wars. In Japan, it's a runaway financial hit, incredibly successful series, uh, continues to this day. In fact, I know a bunch of people who may think, you know, liking Ava is sort of punk rock in America and then like go to Japan are like, oh, this is like the most normal thing in the world. <laughs> like, I am not countercultural in the home country by liking this. <laughs> so it makes a lot of sense that eventually, of course, someone in Hollywood would want to make an adaptation. And they tried. And you can see the evidence of this uh, in one of the later ADV pressings of the Evangelion DVDs. Uh, There was a bonus section where they even showed some of the artwork that was going to be done for an American Evangelion film. I bring that up now because you can see Ramiel in those illustrations. Uh, Ramiel looks a little different, like there's a visible core on the outside, but it's unquestionably the same angel. You can see all the Evangelion units. They they look sort of like darker and, and 
more grotesque than the anime versions do, which sort of shows you where Hollywood was uh, at the time in the early 2000s, make it darker. Uh, This is the same thinking that got us the uh, Christopher Nolan Batman trilogy, I think. And so the story behind that production art is it came from Studio Weta. Ian, are you familiar with Studio Weta? So from what I understand, they're a New Zealand based digital effects production company that, you know, they worked on like Lord of the Rings and uh, they're like associated with Peter Jackson for the most part. That's correct. And actually the Evangelion production art was the first project they started working on after Return of the King won Best Picture. So that should tell you about something about like what the hopes were for the Evangelion movie. I think the people making it were very, very, very optimistic. And at one point in time, James Cameron had had been attached to it, which is going to become Jermaine later. But but it never did get made, of course. Mm-hmm. The reasons are tough, and we could do a whole episode on the legal hurdles that have faced the Evangelion property everywhere outside of Japan and even in Japan. Um, Hideki Anno has actually sued Gainax. He helped start Gainax, and now they're separated, and he's sued some of the people who helped make Evangelion with him. So... Long story short, legal mumbo jumbo and bickering is why the movie never got made to the best of everyone's knowledge. But if you analyze the plot to the first four episodes and you look at some timelines, I'm not the first person to draw this line and this isn't conclusive proof, but I think we did get a version of the Hollywood Evangelion movie. Do you know what movie I'm talking about, Ian? I think you do. I I have a very good idea. If I am correct, you are talking about Pacific Rim. That is correct. I am talking about Pacific Rim. For listeners who haven't seen it, Pacific Rim is a PG-13 giant monster versus robot movie directed by now Academy Award winning director Guillermo del Toro. Incidentally, if they were going to remake an Evangelion movie in America, I actually think Guillermo del Toro would be a really good choice still. Guillermo del Toro denies that, that Evangelion has any influence on Pacific Rim. There's a famous interview where someone asked him about this fan theory, and he says, I own Evangelion, but I've never taken it out of the DVD cases. I'm not going to accuse Guillermo del Toro of lying, but if that's true, then uh, considering the way Pacific Rim turned out, maybe he should have watched them. To me, that reminds me a lot of the like Christopher Nolan saying that he never saw Paprika when Inception came out. Or the way that like Darren Aronofsky talks about how little, according to him, Perfect Blue influenced Black Swan, in which by making that comparison, I'm saying I call bullshit. I I don't believe I, I think the Aronofsky parallel is even more egregious. I can. This is one of my like pet rants that I can go on. I, I think it is a uh, not criminal because it was actually legal case of stealing an entire movie because Darren Aronofsky owns the rights to perfect blue because he stole a scene from it for Requiem for a dream. So he knows this movie front and back already. Don't try it, Darren. Like I've, I've seen both. I know what you're doing. Listeners who don't know, we're, we're making reference to another esteemed anime art director, Satoshi Khan, who is a contemporary of Hideki Anno's, although I don't believe they ever worked 
together. But if you're if you're going to make an argument for best anime director that isn't Miyazaki of the past 20 years, and it's not Hideki Anno, it's probably Satoshi Kon. Back to Pacific Rim. I'm not speaking out of turn in this. I th- There's certainly a lot of parallels. If you watch Pacific Rim, the premise of the story is that it's about these giant robots that fight these apocalyptic uh, giant monsters. And the robots only work when two people can form some sort of deep mental or emotional connection. And sort of like the narrative drive of the movie is Charlie Hunnam's ability or inability to connect with Rinko Kikuchi's character. Rinko Kikuchi's character, by the way, does have dyed blue hair and acts like kind of a sociopath, which is why it makes a lot of sense that they would model that plot on these particular episodes in Evangelion. What do you think of Pacific Rim, Ian? As I alluded to in our transition into this part of the podcast, I think it's pretty disposable. I enjoyed it a lot when it first came out. I thought it was a like really goofy, overly... How to put it? So I think that the reason I enjoyed it so much is because it reminded me of shows like Evangelion and other big robot anime. And It's nice to sort of feel seen by a major Hollywood blockbuster, but if you actually try and like think of it as a movie, eh, you know, it really loses steam in the in the latter half. The the big climactic fight scene honestly has nothing on these two episodes of Ava in terms of just like good action directing. Pacific Rim fails in the way that a lot of big blockbusters do in not establishing scale of action. Like by the time the biggest kaiju shows up, it's like you can't tell that it's appreciably bigger than the monsters you've already seen. And so it just kind of feels like more of the same and the movie just sort of falls flat. I also have, and this was really clarified to me when I started thinking about it, on a thematic level versus Ava, I think it's actually like a cheapening of the ideas that Ava is trying to get across when it comes to that idea that you brought up about Pacific Rim's core metaphor being two people having to overcome their differences and connect with each other and work side by side in order to beat the kaiju. You can see some parallels in that in Ava in that the pilots of the Ava, in this case, Ray and Shinji, have to synchronize and connect with the Ava themselves. So what's the big difference, right? Like both of these are about using the robots to sort of like connect with another person in some way. The difference is that Pacific Rim dumbs this down. It makes it so that the the Jaegers, which are the giant robots that they pilot in Pacific Rim, facilitate and allow the connection between people. They heighten humans' abilities to connect with each other. The Avas, on the other hand, are the exact opposite. They make it more difficult to connect with each other. They highlight and interrogate the difficulty of being able to relate to another human being. And that like it's all in the AT field. You know, that's the core metaphor in Ava that Pacific Rim throws to the side at its own detriment and makes something that is definitely more accessible, but also cheaper and less emotionally resonant to me. How about you? How do you feel? I, I could not have put it better myself. Your assessment is spot on. 
I'll say this about Pacific Rim. Maybe no one was more excited for that movie to come out than I was. Because like you said, it did feel good to be seen by sort of this like big faceless corporate machine. That's a juvenile fantasy I've now set aside, by the way. It's time to put away childish things. I haven't put uh, my love of kaiju and giant robots and anime away because those aren't childish things. Uh, but believing that Hollywood will ever actually see you as like an individual, that that's not true. That said, I was such an easy mark for that movie that it didn't work says something about like a deep failure on its part. I couldn't, I think you're, I think you're on line of, of what the deep failure is on like a thematic level, but there's no particular reason why Pacific Rim shouldn't have been better. That said, um, the story behind how the movie was made that we do know, minus the, I think it was made from the live action Evangelion script. The story about how it was made is actually pretty interesting. Do you know anything about about the production or the the production history of Pacific Rim? Ian, uh, I I knew it was not. Del Toro's got like a lot of like projects in his back pocket that he uh, once he gained like gained the juice from doing like Pan's Labyrinth and the Hellboy movies. He tried to get a few different things made. Like I know that there's been like this long gestating. H.P. Lovecraft adaptation that he wanted to do, but this happened instead is basically what I what I understand. Totally. I'm only going to... The story is interesting, so I'm going to tell it, but I'm going to super simplify it. Um, and I'm getting this from a really spectacular profile of Del Toro at the time that Pacific Rim was being made in The New Yorker. We're going to link to that in the show notes, uh, along with links to where you can see the art for the live-action Evangelions. Check them out. Read that story. It's wonderful. But the long and short of it is Guillermo del Toro loves, he likes anime, he likes Godzilla, but he loves H.P. Lovecraft. That's, that's his, like, his shit. And after Pan's Labyrinth was this runaway hit, he signed with Universal and he wanted to do an adaptation of H.P. Lovecraft's Mountains of Madness. And he had... Such an impressive, the the firepower he had to make this movie was bonkers. He had Weta to do the effects. He had James Cameron to produce. This is where I'm drawing the parallels between this and Evangelion. James Cameron said specifically that he was going to give Del Toro not just Weta, but the Avatar team on Weta to do the effects. And he had Tom Cruise signed on to star. And he had a script that had no swearing, no nudity, and no blood. The reason the script didn't get cleared was that Universal wasn't sure that they could make a multi, like like it would cost something like $50 million, $100 million to make, expensive. Del, Del Toro had never made a movie that expensive before. And they didn't want to take the gamble on it maybe getting an R rating. So first they wanted him to prove that he could make a really successful film on that budget that for sure wasn't rated R. And that project got shelved, and then he started Pacific Rim. Pacific Rim also kind of qualifies along those lines, right? Like, Pacific Rim is a big budget aimed straight down the middle. I think it came out in, like, August of the year that it dropped in. Like, that... Summer movie. Yeah, it it reminds me of, like, Christopher Nolan, again, is a really good analogy, because, like, he was given the keys to Batman to prove that he could make blockbusters so that he can make inception. And I I think Pacific Rim is sort of a similar thing where like 
okay, yeah, make your big robot movie. The Transformers movies are hits. So, you know, there's some evidence that this can work. And, you know, he kind of miffed it. Like, I know that Pacific Rim did well enough to warrant a cheap sequel. And it, like, did pretty well in the foreign box offices. But it was like a, a middling returns in America, from what I recall. That's correct. This is before you could make an unqualified hit with just the Chinese market. Although I think they were they were right to aim there from a financial perspective. But your 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 assessment's right. Pacific Rim did not become this giant franchise. It's not Christopher Nolan was given the keys to Batman and he delivered like the ultimate series of college dorm poster movies, mostly by secretly remaking other college dorm poster movies. Watch heat. And also the man who shot Liberty Valance. That's the other big secret influence on the dark Knight. but that's probably not showing up on as many dorm posters. <laughs> so there, there we go. It looks like we're probably never going to see the live action Evangelion adaptation, but maybe in some parallel universe, Del Toro got to make his uh, Mission Impossible dude in versus Space Slugs $50 million horror movie. And someone else got to make the Evangelion movie. And maybe in that parallel reality, the Evangelion movie is good. Maybe it's not. Interestingly enough, however, and there's one more little caveat to this because we should talk about this later. We could do a whole bonus episode on Pacific Rim. We could also probably do a whole bonus episode on Hideki Anno's award-winning live-action super $100 million movie because Hideki Anno got to do the last Japanese Godzilla movie, Shin Godzilla, Godzilla Resurgence in America. Have you seen it, Ian? I haven't seen it. I, I'm a pretty lazy Godzilla watcher. I've seen like the original 1950s Godzilla and then I saw... Not the most recent American version, but the other one that came out with the incredible trailer. And that's pretty incredible much the trailer. best to say about it is as an incredible trailer. It, I personally like that maybe better than Shin Godzilla. But interestingly enough, Shin Godzilla is also basically a remake of these two episodes of Evangelion. Mm. Right down to they get to a point where Godzilla is about to win. He's just used his beam weapon and he freezes for an amount of time. And the movie becomes a half hour of hyper quick paced bureaucracy porn where they think of a convoluted sci fi way to defeat Godzilla without using any sort of government oversight. <laughs> and then there's the big end fight sequence, and you get to hear the Monster Zero march, and then it's over. And they say that eventually they're going to do Shin Godzilla 2, and maybe Anno's going to come back to direct it. But I, I think it's funny that. Just to bring everything back around, these two episodes of Evangelion are so good as an action sequence that not only did the Americans try to basically remake it, but so did the guy who fucking wrote and directed it. You can see why. I mean, they're fucking terrific episodes, but if what you really enjoyed out of these episodes is Masato giving the finger to bureaucracy, you're really going to like the next two episodes of Ava. However, we're a bit split on the next two, so you'll get to find out why in the next episode of the Human Instrumentality Podcast, and uh, maybe we'll be able to edit in a little more fan service for you next time, too. Thank you for listening. If you liked the episode, please rate, review, and subscribe. 
If you want to share your thoughts on the show or about anything really, email us at humaninstrumentalitypodcast at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at anotheravapod and on Instagram at humaninstrumentalitypod. Extra special thanks to Kira Anderson for the graphics and web design. See you next week.